Amen. At this time, I would ask you to take a most precious possession that you can hold in your hands, and that being the Word of God. And if you will turn with me to page uh, 892 in the Pew Bible, if you need one, or John chapter 6, verse 35. This morning, uh, we have lifted up our voices and we have proclaimed that the Lord is good and that his mercy endureth forever. And then we came right behind that and proclaimed that his mercy is more. And then we just sang, show us Christ. So we come to the scriptures because our only hope in seeing Christ is when we open up the scriptures and we ask that God, by his grace, by his love, by his mercy, reveal to us the truth of Christ Jesus. And so that's where we find ourselves today. So glad that you are here. I'm glad that we had the opportunity to gather together this morning and to have Christ in common. So, with this on our hearts, let us read the Word of God, John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And I am hard pressed in this moment to think of any more humbling task than to stand before the church and preach. You know me. You know my heart. You know my mind. You know the deep longings of my soul. And apart from your grace and your mercy, I, of all people, have no business standing up here. Father, I call upon your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. That you would work in our hearts this morning. As we wrestle with a most challenging text. You give us eyes to see. Ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive. 
Will you do this great work through the power of the Holy Spirit now? And we ask that you show us Christ. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. I brought up here with me this morning one of the very first Bibles that I owned, uh, the True Love Waits Bible. I was in high school and I needed this. Somebody put it in my hands and said, here, read these words. And I did. I, I read many passages of Scripture. I think I read the devotions more in the book and the self-helps, but I'm grateful for this resource because it brought me to the scriptures. In the front, I have written here, saved June 24th, 1994. Because I remember my student pastor saying, hey, write this down. You will not want to forget this season in which you repented to follow Christ. I'm grateful for his leadership in my life. I also have written on the front page, in all you do, be a good witness, and if necessary, use words. I do not like that passage or that statement. Um, I think we should use words all the time, but it ministered to me at the age of 16, I guess. Even in here, I, I keep pictures of my baptism and my really bad haircut. But yet it's precious to pull out this Bible every now and then and to remember the beginning days of following Christ, and I am so grateful for the faithful ones who gave me this word of God. I also had another Bible. I couldn't find it or else I would have brought it up here. It's the one I was really wanting to use today, but, but it had red letters in it. And I remember the first time reading that Bible and seeing that there were red letters, I did not understand why some were red and some were black. I didn't know why they were all black, why they all couldn't be black, or why they all couldn't be red. And then somebody explained it to me. They said, Brian, those letters in red, those are the letters, or those are the words of Jesus that he spoke. Ah, I get it now. That makes sense to me. But then I also remember people making statements like this. I don't know much of the Bible, but I read the red letters. I know what Jesus said. It's almost as if we elevated the red letters above all the others, but yet all of the word of God that we hold is true because it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit and that men were to write as they were instructed. But the red letter edition came around about 1899. It was produced by a man named Louis Klopschik. And I guarantee you I said that last name wrong. No apologies. A difficult one. But in 1899, he put out the Red Letter New Testament, followed in 1901 by the Red Letter Bible, Old and New Testament. He worked for the Christian Herald magazine. And one of the reasons that he put out the Red Letter Bible, because he, he did, he wanted the words of Jesus to be lifted off the page, to, to stick out so that as you came across them, you knew that there's a pause here. Jesus is now speaking. So if, if you were around Jesus, he said this. And I appreciate that. Uh, that is a great help. But it was never intended to say that these words are more important than all the other words in the Bible. But today, 
As we come to John chapter 6, and as we've been in the book of John this year, we are reading red letters. These are Jesus' words to a crowd of people that have seen miracles, great works, him taking few loaves of bread and fish and multiplying them for over 5,000 people to feast upon. And now they're gathered around him and they're asking him this question, what else you have? What more do you have for us? So this is how Jesus responds to a multitude of people. Now, in today's time, the temptation would be to say something nice, well-received, so that the people would stay, right? I mean, if there's a big crowd, don't chase them off. Let's keep them here because that determines success. But Jesus doesn't take that route. And this is what he says again in John 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So if you're taking notes today, you want to write at the top of that page, drawn by the Father. Jesus is going to make that clear. But before he gets to that point, Jesus clearly tells the people who he is, that he is the bread of life. It's not as if Jesus failed to tell the people that he was the Christ they were just unwilling to believe that it was true. They were unwilling to believe. We drive through the bank to make a deposit, have the kids in the back seat, and the teller will see that we have children in the back, which indicates what? Could you please give us some suckers, some candy? I always feel strange when the kids are saying, hey, ask if we can have some candy. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if we're supposed to ask that. We're just supposed to wait on the generosity. Just pause, just chill. We'll see what happens. But it's never fun when you have three kids in the back and there was a miscount in the back row and you only get two suckers. But all that means is more candy for daddy because <laughs> I'm not about to determine who gets what. Or that we receive red suckers when they wanted green suckers because red suckers are not as good as green suckers. So we were riding through the bank the other day, made a deposit. And Curry, my wife, was sitting in the passenger seat and she said, oh, this, this, this lady, she's awesome. She's great. I love when I come through and, and she waits on us. She's great. And sure enough, when we received the little tube, came through the tube, what is that little capsule? Yeah, you open it up, three green suckers. I was like, she gets us. <laughs> this is perfect. Here you go. One for each of you. No, no arguments. Everybody gets along. It's good. Let's see, sometimes when kids receive a gift, they'll say, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what I wanted. But you're saying you're missing the point. They're showing kindness. Just, just take it. Take the yellow sucker. Take the red sucker. It's going to be good. Not only that, it's when kids have birthdays. Presents are brought to the party and nice little circle of presents. And the child sits in the middle. And you can wrap your gift or you can 
take the easier route and put it in a nice bag. Some tissue, make it frou-frou. Nice, pleasant. It's attractive to the eye. There's always that one bag that's really big, but yet the gift inside doesn't match the size of the bag. Uh, A smaller gift could be a very good gift, but just size-wise, it's It was probably not necessary to have such a big bag. The child will take the bag and he'll dive into it and he'll pull out this gift. And it's nice, but you know what he's about to do? He's about to dig back in that bag and tear out all the tissue paper and say, is that it? Nothing, nothing else? You'll say, you'll be quiet. (laughs) Be grateful for what you have. Whereas we as adults, we're guilty of this. We'll receive a gift in a bag we kind of go through it and we just want to make sure that we got everything out. And so we don't say, is that it? We'll just kind of push the paper down and work our hand around just to make sure there's nothing at the bottom. I hope I'm not the only one who's ever done that and just confessed it. As if to say, is that it? Is there more? Jesus has given these people a wonderful gift. And they're standing before him and they're, they're asking him, is that it? So nothing more? And later, as we'll see in the text, they'll leave. Because they'll say, you're offering red. We want it green. You're not the Savior that we had in mind. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is Jesus' words to the Jews. What do they need to believe? That I am he, that I am the Christ. How can God come down in the flesh and stand before man, stand before his creation and not be recognized. We know why. John chapter 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Which begs the question, is there a problem with God or is the problem with man? Well, the problem is with man. And here's why. Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What we see in this passage is that sin not only makes us indifferent towards God, but completely opposed to him. And we have no freedom in of ourselves to bust out of the chains of slavery. I am afraid that when we hear that we were enslaved to sin, that we were some yet or somehow just wounded. But yet what we see in Scripture is that we were completely held captive, lost and in darkness, unable to see, and unwilling to come to Christ. 
This is the audience that Jesus has standing before him. So does man's hope lie with himself or with God? Does our hope reside with ourselves or with God? Where is the hope? Haven't we heard our whole lives this statement that if we work hard, we can overcome anything? If we just set our minds to it, we can accomplish anything out there. You know, if I just think really hard about how sinful I am and just how lovely Jesus is, if I just put my mind to it, if I just put my feet to action and go on a good string of events that God would be pleased with, yes, that would merit my salvation. But that's simply not true. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is not a garment that you would want to go out in public and put on display. You're embarrassed of this garment. This garment is thrown out. It is an embarrassment. Our righteous deeds in and of ourselves it's an embarrassment. Filthy rags to be thrown out. Because who are we before a holy God? So Jesus, out of love, is making it clear to the Galileans, who many of them will, from this point forward, will be referred to as the Jews. He's saying that salvation is fully the work of God. Wiping out any remnant of self-righteousness, self-entitlement, or a boasting in self when it relates to salvation. Here's what he says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. One thing I want to point out here when Jesus is telling the crowd, hey, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. He's saying, you're standing before me and you're saying I'm not enough. Because you're believing that I'm not enough does not mean that I am a failure. Jesus did not fail. He came to do the will of God. And he finished it. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What does this mean? Who is he speaking of? Well, I believe that if we take the totality of Scripture and we bring it together, he's speaking of the elect. An election. The church. A people that he has set aside for himself not by their own merit, but by his own goodness and grace and mercy. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. Which means there's a chain of events that take place for those whom he foreknew. Now, we'll look at a passage like this, and for many, they'll say, yes, God foreknew. God looked forward with great wisdom and understanding, and he knew. And we can wrestle with that, but yet it's not only just knowing, but it's foreordaining. That word is not just that God knew something that was going to happen. God does know all things, but that he also foreordained before the foundation of the world. How do we know this? Because the, the same word is used in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This foreordained or foreordaining of Christ was set forth before the foundation of the world. Now I know where we can quickly go with our minds when we hear terms like election and predestination and foreknowing. And for many years we've been told to stay away from these things because it's the mystery of God. But if that indeed is true, then why does Jesus respond to these men and women and tell them that all that the Father gives me will come to me? The Father is giving to the Son a people. And Jesus is telling them that I am not a failure. I've come for these people. And there will be a response from these whom the Father has given to me. I don't think Jesus is being arrogant here. I believe he's speaking truth to them and saying, this is what you need to know. I am God. And you are not. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, as we read last week, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. May we not forget in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will what do we have before us a people who in and of themselves in their sin are unwilling they're standing before the Messiah and he's done an incredible work for them and we would think in our own minds in our own reasoning that would be enough but it wasn't in the same way that it wasn't when God could create a world and he could make man out of dust and a woman from the rib of him give them everything and give them one command, do not eat of this tree, and that wasn't enough. Digging through the bag, is there not more? And in love, Jesus is pointing them to the reality that it is the Father who gives to me those who will come to me. Prognosco, which means to foreknew or foreknow, essentially entails a gracious self-determining on God's part from eternity to extend fellowship with himself to undeserving sinners. John MacArthur 
in his commentary, makes this statement. He says, there was a moment in eternity past when the father desired to express his perfect and incomprehensible love for the son. To do this, he chose to give to the son a redeemed humanity as a love gift, a company of men and women whose purpose would be throughout all the eons of eternity to praise and glorify the son and then serve him perfectly. So where is there great hope and promise in this? Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I will never cast out. Every Christian that I've engaged with in conversation when it comes to their salvation has struggled with, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Did I say all the right words on June 24th, 1994? Did I say them just right? But yet here, as we look to Christ, he's saying all of those who would call upon me, who would trust in me, will know this. I will never cast out. They're eternally secure. So as we grapple with this challenging doctrine, we may ask this question. What if I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not of the elect? What if I'm not cast in? <laughs> that he'll never cast me out? What if I want to come to him, but he won't let me because I was never foreordained. I was never given from the Father to the Son. Well, that is a straw man argument, which means there's not a lot of substance to it. There's not a lot of truth at all in it because anyone who would come to Jesus, and this is what Jesus is telling them, if you come to me, it's because the Father drew you. That's why. There is no room for arrogant prideful, boastful people in heaven because God receives the glory. Man was enchained. He was enslaved. He could not see. But yet God had mercy and grace. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out if you're here today and you're worried about that, worry no more. Trust in Jesus and know that he'll never cast you out. No one loves you like Jesus. But on down in this conversation, he says in verse 644, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we, we can have many conversations in regards to this challenging text, but one thing we cannot deny is that the Father draws those who are saved. Now, we can debate on what that drawing means, but let us come together knowing that without the drawing, there is no saving. But as A.W. Pink points out, that God must first be revealed by the Spirit before he will be before he will be received by the sinner. 
The Spirit goes forth to awaken. What I firmly believe is an effectual call. When the Holy Spirit comes, he wakes you up and there's a real decision made, a real repentance, a real changing of action and trusting in Jesus. We make statements like, I, I, I never heard the name of Jesus like this until this moment, or I went to church my whole life until this moment. Who receives the credit for that? Did we just come to a point of enlightenment on our own? No, the Holy Spirit comes. There's a drawing that happens. This drawing is divine. We may look at this drawing as a type of wooing, as a tender calling, as an invitational call that I sang growing up as a child, time after time, he has waited before, now he is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, won't you let him come in? The problem is Jesus is saying no one is willing to open the door because of his sin. The Holy Spirit comes bursting forth through the door and makes a way. We need the Holy Spirit to knock down the door to enlighten us of our sin and our great need for Jesus. And when that happens, there's not a drawing and a dragging against our will where we go, no, don't drag me to you. Stop, let me go. That's not the idea here. But this word draw does mean, in fact, a pulling and a dragging. The same word is used as John uses it to describe the disciples' action when they were pulling their nets filled with fish, I believe 153 to be exact, onto the dock in John 21, verse 11. What do we see from this? Jesus says, go get those fish, bring them. We're going to cook them. But in order for them to have the fish, they must go and draw them. Jesus is saying they're a real fish. Go, draw them, bring them. I believe we see this picture when Jesus comes to Peter and Peter had been fishing all night. Remember this story? He'd been fishing all night. And then he says, let us go out. And Peter says, oh, we've been fishing all night. We're, we're worn out. Jesus, don't you get it? We're professionals. We're professionals. We got this. There are no fish to be caught. Jesus says, let us go and put down your nets. Why did he tell them to put down the nets? Because there were fish to be brought up. Real fish to be brought up. But if they didn't put down their nets, there would be no fish to be brought into the boat. What do we do with this? We have the Holy Spirit at work and we have the call of the disciple to go make disciples, to go preach the gospel because there are fish out there. And indeed, that's what Jesus told the disciples. I will now make you fishers of men. There are people whom the Father has given to me. They are there. They are out there. There are people to be saved, people to follow, people to trust. To we as the church, to us as the church, this is encouraging to know that as we go out, there are people who will repent and follow Christ. 
Just as it was for Jesus, it is for us as people who deny the gospel doesn't mean that Jesus fails or Christianity fails. All our hope is in God sovereignly and graciously and lovingly drawing a people to himself. For without that, there is not a man or woman on earth that would ever desire God. Why? Because that's how devastating the fall was in the garden. But you may ask this question, okay, so I follow Christ. He'll never cast me out. But what if I do something terribly wrong? What if I do a really bad sin? Well, it's hard to do worse than Peter's bad day, is it not? When Jesus says, you'll deny me three times, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. And right around the corner, what does he do? He denies Jesus. And yet he's restored. Why? Because he would never cast him out. Our hope is always in Christ. And we trust in a gracious, loving Father. This is what Jesus continues to say. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I believe Jesus is going to raise us up on the last day, is he not? He says it more than once. What is the will of the Father? Jesus says it, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. John 14, 8 and 9, as we'll later read, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Speak of the Father, show us the Father. And this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? For the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they all work together in this gift of salvation. They don't work separately apart from one another. It all goes together. It may boggle our minds, but God is completely in control. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What did Jesus come to do? Save sinners. How could he save sinners? Because of a gracious father and a powerful work of the Holy Spirit and the effectual call and the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. It all comes together. It is the will of God. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Hear this. Jesus does not reject anyone who comes to him or expel anyone who is in him. He keeps those who are in him and will not allow anyone to steal them from him. I once had someone tell me that when we read in John chapter 10, 27 and 28, when we are in 
the son's hand and we're in the father's hand and no one can snatch us out. I said, no, what do you do about that? Because this person's belief was that he could lose his salvation. What do you do with that? And his response was, well, it doesn't say I can't pry myself out of his hands. But when we bring all of this together, we see that the reason that you are in his hand is because the Father gave you to the Son, and the Son came to do the will of the Father, and it is finished, and you are in him. You are eternally secure. It's always his work. It's always his work. So what does this do for the elect? Does it mean that they go about bragging because they're the church? God chose them? No. In fact, it should be the absolute opposite. It should bring great humility and wonder, but joy and love, privilege to go forth and carry the name of Jesus. So what is needed? If you're here today and you're saying, well, I want to follow Jesus. What do I need to do? This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is telling this group of people, come to me. You come to me, and this is what's going to happen. You believe on me, this is what's going to happen. So here's what's needed today. If you want to follow Christ, it's to come. There is a real call that goes out over all the world. Come to Jesus. Place your faith in Christ. Meaning, look on him as the only Savior. And not just a Savior, one kind of Savior, a God of America. No, the only way. Look on him and believe. Believe that he is the Christ. Meaning that he died on the cross for your sins. And dying on the cross for your sins, your sins were dealt with on that cross. Paid for in full, which means the wrath of God will not be unleashed against you. Because Christ received that wrath on your behalf. He paid for you. And your response is genuine. It is true. You can follow him today, trusting that this good work has been done by Jesus. Will you believe that today? Will you follow Christ today? Yes, will you make Christ your Savior today? Look to him and be saved. He'll forgive you. And here's the promise he will not cast you out. And here's the confidence that you walk in that it was never done by your work. Never done by your own wisdom, your own knowledge, but it will forever be accredited to God's grace. Church, so what do we do with this message? Remember, Jesus told Peter to let down your nets. We must let down our nets, we must go and tell people about Jesus. We don't hear the doctrine of election and go, oh, well, God's just going to do what he's going to do. 
so I'm just going to sit back and enjoy that I'm a part of it. No, that's not evidence of those who have been found in Christ. Those who are in Christ will go throughout all of the world. Do you know that some of the greatest missionaries, William Carey being one of them, embraced this doctrine and yet he gave his life on the mission field so that people would hear the gospel. For they will not know if we do not go tell. And we are not responsible for saving any man or any woman, but we go in full confidence of God's grace. That if he would save a wretch and a sinner like me, he'll save anyone. He'll save anyone. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The lazy bones of our Orthodox churches cry. God will do his own work. And then they look out the softest pillow they can find and put it under their heads and say, the eternal purposes will be carried out. God will be glorified. This is what I call fishing in the trees. What do you mean fishing in the trees? My first opportunity that I had in student ministry was over in Quitman, Philadelphia Baptist Church. Had a group of about 10 students that I loved dearly. I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I'm grateful for the patience and kindness that that local church showed me. There was a young man there who liked to fish. He had a pond. He invited me to come fishing with him. He called me Brother Brian. Brother Brian, let's go fishing. I said, all right, let's go fishing. So we go fishing. We're catching some bass. Because what other fishing is there to do? And all of a sudden, I guess it was maybe a strong wind or something. It took my lure and cast into the tree. Well, I didn't want this young man to see that I had cast my lure into the tree and that I had a struggle on my hands. I was yanking the lure to come back to the boat. And yet the more I yanked, the more the boat began to shake. And all of a sudden, this young man turned around. He looked at me. He followed my line up to the tree. He said, Brother Brian, the fish aren't up in the trees. <laughs> Thank you so much, young man. I remember fishing with my dad growing up and I would quickly get bored. It wasn't like Nintendo games, like if you don't like the way that game's going, you just do a different game. I mean, if you're out fishing and the fish aren't biting, and it's hot, you begin to complain, or else I did. And so I'd reel up my rod and put it down by the boat, just kind of kick back. My dad would say, hey, what you doing? Well, dad, I'm not catching anything and I'm bored. He said, well, son, I guarantee you this. You will not catch a fish with your rod sitting in the boat. <laughs> okay, dad. Not real. Because he's right. You're not going to catch a fish by sitting back and going, this is too hard. 
You know what, God, just do your thing. I'm just gonna live my life. That's not the attitude of a Christian. We must cast nets into the water, which means we must go to where lost people are. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in schools, restaurants, all around us. And bid them to look to Christ and be saved. Father draws. Anybody who comes to Christ is drawn by the Father. But they will not be drawn if the net is not placed in the water. Let us pray. Father, there's no way to preach a message like this and to be haughty or proud. but completely humbled. There are many days when I ask you this question. Why would you ever love me? Why are you so patient with me? Father, why haven't you just gone ahead and wiped me off the face of this earth? Why would you ever save me from my sins? All of those things that not only did I do against you before I followed you, but things I've done. And the things I haven't done for your name's sake as a Christian. For those sins, you sent your son to die for those sins too. so grateful for your love. Father, it is not enough for us just to rejoice but have no action. Based on what Jesus says in this passage today, will you send us forth with a great zeal and determination and confidence to share Christ? Use us, Father, to cast out the nets that you may draw through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel, that man, that woman will recognize their sin and trust in Jesus. This is our prayer. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.